Welcome to the Something Something Experience Podcast, episode 22. I'm Michael John Simpson. This week, as promised, is a full-length episode with 20-year L.A. prog rock band Rocket Scientists. Eric Norlander, Mark McCrite, Don Schiff, and I sat down in front of a digital fireplace at Don's house and talked about musical instruments, showbiz stories, playing in Vegas, reading music, album production, progressive rock techniques, intersecting musical genres, musical roots, album-oriented rock, first-bought albums, collecting music, record vinyl, album art and packaging, their newest album, Refuel, and EP, Supernatural Highways, French Horn, music videos versus touring, steampunk, and far too many bands and artists to list. The fading light will bring you home. Here's episode 22 of the Something Something Experience. Where we choreographed things where like I would walk I, in yeah like Don, Don would be here back, and then yeah. he'd go this way and then Mark would come in and they're like all, continuous shots which is really yeah. neat that's yeah. cool cool rather than you know cut 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 yeah. cut we did go and you were there the day we shot it yeah yeah it was I was commented yeah, on yeah, it. Kind of in the middle yeah it was really cool that, that porch so uh yeah um we're just talking about the uh the latest video um uh, that just uh, came out today, right? Just released today. That's right. Yeah. Eight o'clock this morning. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, that was the when we shot uh, when we were, uh, recorded the podcast, the mini podcast with you guys and the one with Heidi at the house in uh, Beechwood when we were you guys were shooting. Right. It was yeah. cool. It was really good. Kind of cool to see that setup and see the video. So that was great. So how are you guys doing? It's it's been uh, um, a few weeks. Sorry, right? a few weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody have a good good holiday and New Year yeah. and all that and good. Good yeah. holiday. Cool. A lot of traveling. A lot of driving and. Now it's over with. Yeah, yay! Back to <laughs> back seems to, like longer. Back than a to few traffic. Weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Back to traffic and yeah. work and all that crap. So yeah, yeah. yeah. you got this whole collection of sticks and bases and oh, yeah, uprights yeah. and guitars all, and all stuff great. that's out. Getting you so violin was his newest acquisition. Oh, that's nice. They're all admiring that. Yeah. So when we have we have an expression in this band yes. uh, that um, when it comes to instruments that it doesn't really matter. You know, we obviously want to have nice instruments and all that. But right. The expression is, it ain't the fiddle, it's the it's fiddler. It's the fiddler, right, right. 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 And it's, so now Don has a fiddle. So. Yeah. Right. Okay, there okay. you go. And he's the fiddler. And I it's, fiddle around. Right. <laughs> well, it's like we say with, with the guitar gear, too, is, is you know, the tone, it's, it's really a, more about, like, what's in your hands. Yep. Yeah. Right, right, right. It, right. At least that's as big a part of a guitar player's sound as the gear that he uses. Right, right. Or it's like the, the what is it, the carpenter never blames his tool or the, you know, I mean, there's <laughs> yeah. all these all these different instruments or yeah. Um, uh, aphorisms and, and, and things for, for just basically uh, hone your craft. It doesn't matter what you what you uh, bash it out on. Yeah. You know, figure out how to make it sound the way you want to. So, What's interesting about this album is in the past um, there's been a lot of talk about all the exotic instruments I use as the keyboard player. Yeah. The synthesizers like the giant modular Moog synthesizer yeah. and like the vintage Mellotron, the Rhodes and you know some new cool digital synthesizer or sure, software sure. instrument. And uh, I actually did a, an interview with an English magazine a, a couple of weeks ago and of course they asked the question, "Oh, so tell us about all the new interesting mm. instruments on this album." And I said, "Well, 
Um, there are a lot of new interesting instruments on this album, and none of them are keyboards. <laughs> <laughs> and so I talked about Don's half fretless and... NS stick, which is right there, where right. the yeah. bottom four strings That's are fretless, cool. and cool. the top four strings are fretted, like you see uh, gratuitously featured in the Galileo video. Yeah, there yeah, was a yeah. Th- Man, there was a thread, a whole buzz about that when we posted oh, wow, that video. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah, I was like, check out that instrument. Oh, I I've, I've uh, got to, oh yeah. I've got to catch up yeah. on this. I, I launched it this morning, and then I haven't checked in yet. <laughs> so we have that and of course, you know, the string instruments, the you know, the cello and the contrabass and cool and so forth. And then Mark has this what what seems like a pretty ordinary instrument, this yeah. gold top Les Paul guitar. Uh-huh. And a lot of people have gold top Les Paul guitars. That's one of the coolest guitars you can play. So cool. people play it, right? Yeah. But there's something about that guitar and Mark's fingers and Mark's phrasing and just his kind of lyrical approach to soloing that just works. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, he still breaks out the strap for those kind of, you know, clean, glassy parts. Again, like on the Galileo video, sure. you see him playing that 70s strap that he's had since he was three feet tall, I believe. <laughs> um, first, first musical present. Yeah. yeah. I have a picture. Yeah. <laughs> the guitar is bigger than me. I think I had, I think I had a recorder. Uh, <laughs> not, not, and actually, probably around the same time I got a tape recorder, too, so... Um, but yeah, I would recorder saxophone, oh, and then in high school guitar and a little a little piano, like basic piano instruction. And um, why well, you know every every musician has a story about how um, you know it's that piece of gear that they used to have sure. and they got rid of. Sure. and I always regretted it. Yeah, and mine is about when I was in high school. I had uh, it was it was a Les Paul. And I, <laughs> I wanted to get my like a Porta Studio kind of like record at home. I wanted to be able to do my own demos, which was a great thing. But I ended up trading my my beautiful Les Paul for a really crappy bass. <laughs> and the guy, the guy that the, the slimy dude at the music store told me that like I can't really afford to throw in a case for it. Oh, like, oh. nice touch. Oh. So anyway, it's oh. not only so, did he jank you on the yes. on the. On the, on yes. the Les Paul, but he yeah. wouldn't even give you a case for the exactly. Crappy bass. So almost thirty years what later, I finally come full circle and get wow. another Les Paul. See, and it, it, you know, it's that reunion and that love that I think you you hear all when it when it came yeah. time to get my first electric guitar. I saw an ad at a music store, and it, it was a picture basically of what looked like a Les Paul, and it said Les it said Les Paul or it said guitar and case. You know, full uh, solid body guitar and bass in the case. So I'm like, great. So I took my mom there. I'd saved up my money, and I went. It turned out it was a Hondo Revival, mm-hmm. which is a very, very good replica, at least um, you know, sound wise and everything of of a Les Paul. It had the really good solid body on it, and it's got the humbuckers and all that lovely stuff, and the and the good tuning uh, keys on it. Um, and then the case that they were talking about was basically. You know what looked like a raincoat, or you know, like a plastic raincoat that had a handle on it. But then I saw this case next to it. I was actually leaning on this other case, and it was an actual Gibson Les Paul. You know, with the furry interior case. And right, I'm like, right. That's the case. And he's like, "Well, no," but I said, "No, that's the one it was leaning against. That's the case I want. I'm not leaving here. I'll call the Better, better Business Bureau if you don't do <laughs> it." And I got awesome. the whole kit and caboodle for like 160 bucks. Wow. And I still have that Hondo. So, yeah. Well, yeah. not bad. 
But I one of the things I wanted to talk about was here was they could definitely get more. You know, we touched on a couple little things and had a really, I really liked the mini episode, and we actually wound up getting a fair number of listens on that on that one episode. Cool. But what I want to get into and is into more depth of each of your stories of kind of where you came from and how you kind of started in music and more stories like one of the one you just told Mark and and get more stuff you know even 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 some uh, some shameless showbiz stories of, of oh I met so and so you can touch my hand kind of thing yeah, I'd yeah. love <laughs> to hear love to hear stories so Don, whoever wants to Don go first wins on yeah, well, yeah, yeah, Don, I mean, yeah he got to play with Elvis so yeah. there's that um, and, it, and the, I, I keep telling the story over and over again of the uh, the MDA telethon and, and the night that Sinatra oh, yeah, that, reunited Martin Lewis and that was just wow that that was and did, of course did you watch the video I did oh, yeah. I watched yeah, it yeah, yeah. I like, <laughs> Yeah, there he is, yeah. right there yeah. next to the camera. Yeah. And I and I I played that for my for my son, and I talk, told that to other people who were a bit younger than I am, and they're just like, yeah, whatever. And then and then I told it to my ex wife and a couple other people, and they're like, holy shit, that was wow, that was the seventy six MDA telephone. That was like history. I'm like, yeah, it was. It's pretty cool. That was a good so, one. I, another. Uh, you know, I, I got to meet a lot of people when I was in Vegas, and I always thought, oh, you know, nobody dropped my jaw. And I thought, oh, you know, that's nice. Everybody's, you know, they're famous. Okay, did the show. Okay, that was nice. And one time I'm doing, they used to have these Victor, I think there were sports awards, and they were out of Las Vegas. And so I'm in the orchestra, this huge orchestra, and they would hand out the awards in front of the stage, and then the... Uh, band was behind it we would be able to see all the activity by TV cameras while sure. doing your, uh, um, television cameras televisions and so we'd watch the monitors as it was going on and I never cared who was going to be on the show I just figured oh, I'd just flip through the pages oh that's great oh that guy okay that's cool and then all of a sudden John Wayne came on Ooh! <laughs> I know and that's how I was John the, Wayne the Duke now that's impressive and I saw that you know he gave his little speech and he was walking off and I go oh that's my stage right Oh, and I look at my chart and I go, I don't have to play for three more minutes. So I put my bass down and I ran that up. I ran all the way around so I could run into him as he came off. Oh, so, nice. That was my oh, nice. uncontrollable nice. jaw drop. Oh, Mr. Wayne. Wayne. Yeah, yeah, cool. That was your, your I Love Lucy moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And one of my other favorites, that this just, one of those things that never happens in a, in a person's life, and I, it happened for me, so... I didn't have to play the Liberace show. And so he brought his own bass player, but I would have to show up. It was my job in case maybe his bass player got sick and sure. didn't show up. I got it covered. So I go in the band and I'm talking to my friends before the curtain opens up and the show's getting ready to go. And I go, oh, okay, you know, uh, if the curtain opens up and I'm stuck talking to my friends, I got to stay on the stand. So I see the curtain start to part and I get up and I walk in. As it parts open, I follow it just so I'm out. And I, as I'm walking, and I look up, and there's Liberace getting ready to come on. And I go, oh, there's Lee. <laughs> so I look at him, and, I, and he waves to me, and he goes, just like this, hi. <laughs> and he flew in the air. <laughs> and that was his entrance of the show. <laughs> uh, he flies in the so air. Yeah, oh, yeah. and I didn't know it. I go, hey. Fly away. Yeah. <laughs> You just flew over my head. Like you do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that was incredible. That was Peter Pan moment. entrance. Yeah, yeah totally. Wow. Totally. <laughs> it was beautiful. He was all decked out and full oh, flamboyant. Of course, you know, all the rings and the yeah. furs and everything. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was That's a lot great. of fun. Yeah, my, my, I'm a, I'm a kind of right dead on, dead center Gen Xer, and, and so my, my, uh, 
had this unique experience growing up where in the late 70s, early 80s, or before, until the early 80s, there wasn't a lot of afternoon programming for kids for our age. So we were watching reruns from the 50s and 60s. Yeah. And so we were one of those rare generations who actually really were into a lot of the stuff that our parents would listen to. My mom would get up on Saturday morning, and there'd be a phonograph with a big stack of records on it. And, um, and you know, it was Sinatra and Beatles and, and blah, blah, blah. So I would listen to all this music, Johnny Mathis and, and, and Dean Martin and stuff like that. I listened to all this music and actually got into it as a little, little kid before I started having my own musical taste. And then also growing up in the 70s, a lot of soft rock on the radio and stuff, too, and some prog rock, things like that, too. So I had this kind of thing where everybody else is in the new wave, and I liked all the newer stuff that was coming out in the 80s when kids were getting into music at 10, 11, 12, like when I, at my age. But I also had this other wealth of musical experience from before that because I was hanging out with my parents and listening to stuff. So, sure. so. Oh, I've got a million. That's cool. <laughs> Go around a little bit. Oh, yeah. Who, who, just keep who, going. Who's next? <laughs> Boy, you know, after that, it's like, uh, you know, that scene in Peanuts where, you know, um, Linus and Lucy are, like, you know, saying what they see in the clouds and there are these ornate visions and Charlie Brown's like, I was going to say a ducky and a horse. <laughs> anyhow, um, so uh, um, I guess probably the, the, the most meaningful one for me was, um, that I, you know, through my job, I've been able to interact with a lot of people, and I uh, uh, got to know um, Rick Nelson's sons, um, Matt and Gunner. And uh, uh, the thing that was really cool about that for me is that I grew up and my dad was a diehard, diehard Rick Nelson fan, and I cool. would see Ricky Nelson at the State Fair and... You know, knew all his records, and when I was about three years old, I carried one of his records around with me like a security blanket. Oh, <laughs> so, wow, cool. I still have it now. It's like completely unplayable. Yeah. But um, the thing that was cool was my dad happened to be in town when they came to play. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to take my dad to the show and take him backstage, and so oh, it was all about that. That's so fantastic. It was like, and they just treated him like he was part of the family, and my dad knows everything about their whole family, and the sister was there, the sure, other son sure, was there, yeah. like... The whole scene, and that yeah. was that. What was really, really cool. Yeah, so. yeah. It's one thing to meet your own heroes; it's another one to take somebody to meet theirs. Yeah, you know, and that's really that's an extra special thing. Because then you go, both get to have that. So, and then I guess another one was that I've always um, I've always really admired Todd Rundgren, mm-hmm. and uh, again through through uh, through my job, um, uh, I worked on some uh, uh, computer gear and, and basically helped him set up uh, this vision that he had for how he wanted to execute a tour. And so it was just really bizarre. One night it just kind of hit me strange where he's, we're emailing each other back and forth and he's asking me all these questions about, you know, the technology and what have you. And it was like, wow, this is kind of cool. Cool. And, uh, and he, uh, uh, he, he was just awesome to work with. It was, uh, he's very, um, I've admired how into technology he is and how fearless he is in, uh, just diving headfirst into things that really aren't ready to be dove into. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely um, a few artists out there who really yeah. are, are uh, early adopters, as they say. Yeah, and, and, and he's uh, definitely. In fact, at uh, Nam last year, um, I got to see him uh, receive uh, the uh, gosh, what was the award? The it's the Tech Awards, uh, kind of the Innovator Legend. Award. Or yeah, something exactly. Like that. Yeah, yeah. And he was the honoree that year, and it was all about that, about the fact that you know he's on the video toaster and he's doing. Oh yeah, just, video toaster. All the wow, all, yeah. all the all the old stuff. You yeah, know, the, sure. That kind sure. of thing. How about you, Eric? Well, I've been lucky to um, meet and get to know a lot of my heroes 
Cool. Uh, especially prog rock guys. Mm-hmm. Um, I've really gotten to know Keith Emerson, Patrick Moraz. Um, I had a, a kind of a funny story when I first met Rick Wakeman. And for those of you listening, if you've heard this story before, I apologize. <laughs> we'll now like, put up our fingers for the number of times yeah. I've told this story. <laughs> but I was playing an electronic music festival in Holland. And uh, Rick was the headliner. And I was on before him. And we had, I don't know, maybe four or five artists on before me. And we all had to get to the theater at 8 o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. which is unacceptable rock and roll time. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's so um, dark 30. Right. And so <laughs> because we had to do the press, uh, uh, the little press conference. I don't know why it wasn't done you know, the days before, maybe because everyone was coming in from out of town. Or sure. Whatever. But it was done at, at 8 o'clock in the morning uh, in this... You know, behind in this kind of little dressing room at this theater in Holland, and they sat us down in the order that we play. Sure. So I'm like, okay, well, is there okay? So there, so I sat down there, and you know, just kind of waiting for the interview to start. And this, you know, very sleepy kind of grumpy Rick Wakeman comes in, <laughs> sits down down next to me, and I'm like, wow, it's Rick Wakeman. So I said, oh, hi, Rick, I'm I'm Eric Norlander. And he kind of looks up, and I'm going to do a terrible Rick Wakeman impersonation right now, but he's like, oh, Eric, uh, very nice to meet you. I have your records. Ah! <laughs> and so that just, yeah, completely, com- he doesn't sound like that at all, by right, the way. Right, right. Um, wow. That completely blew my mind, and so after, you know, the press conference and all that, I, like, went and checked email, and I think I emailed everyone I knew, like, you wouldn't believe what Rick Wakeman ah, just said. Oh, my God. And, you know, he's uh, obviously one of the one of the greatest keyboardists ever yeah. Oh, yeah, in the history yeah, of yeah. all time and everything, ever. Everything, yeah, yeah. Um, and it was that was just really cool to hear that. Wow! And he's and he's just such a cool, funny guy. On top of it, you know, his I think nowadays his set is like half music, half stand up comedy. <laughs> whether whether he intends it to be that way or not, that's I, what it is. But. I do like a funny storytelling uh, music artist. I've always been a big yeah. Robin Hitchcock fan. Who's I've gotten to meet him several times. Not in a well, I met him once in a professional capacity because I was hosting. I was a VJ, and at the time I was only a programmer, but on a music video show in Denver called Teletoons that came and went uh, from, actually predated MTV and went all the way through in the early 2000s, and eventually was canceled. Uh, but that the music library for which is still sitting in the program director's mother's basement. And at, at one point, the music library was in my basement. Um, when I moved to California, but I got to meet Robin Hitchcock once in in uh, professional capacity from that. But most of the time, it was just kind of as a slobbering fan. So, <laughs> I, I have one more. Um, sure, this is a uh, less expected, but um, I'm I'm a huge fan of uh, you know I, I sort of consider myself sort of the the Adrian Ballou of rocket science. Oh, there you go. And the there connect, you go. The connection to the more beatly um, yeah. you know singer songwriter type style. And then uh, uh, with the progressive arrangements around it. And so one of my heroes is Neil Finn. Of course. Of Crowded House. So he's you know, takes a great pop song and there's a lot of acoustic arrangements, Mellotron and this sure, kind of thing. Sure, sure. And uh, so I went to see him once with the family. And uh, I, knowing what I know about Neil, um, I knew his catalog well. And I knew that there was one song where he plays basically a three-note piano ostinato through the entire song. 
and uh, on occasion he will call someone out of the audience to come up and play with him. Nice. And so I could see him winding up for this song, and he says, and I was wondering if anyone... And so I shoved my 11-year-old daughter out into the the aisle, and she went up and actually played the song. Fantastic. So you have kind of a habit of sharing these moments with members of your family. So your dad and your daughter, and that's really cool. Yeah, that's true. Very cool. Yeah, that's great. Um, Well, uh, oh, go ahead. Should I tell one more? Oh, yes, please do. We're taking up way too much time. Oh, no, no, no. We have no hard at all. That's fine with me. I was was like, oh, can't wait to talk to these guys again. I want to hear hear showbiz stories and and talk music. Let me show Bubby the exit there. I did a... Actually, I think it was... It was on this, the same tour where I, the 2001 European tour that Don was on, mm-hmm. where it was, uh, the tour was billed as Lana Lane and Eric Norlander, my mm-hmm. wife Lana, myself, and Don was playing Stick for us okay. on that tour. And when I, the electronic festival was like before the start of the tour, so I think I went over early and then did that, and then you mm-hmm. came over later, and then we did the full band tour yeah. after that. Well... We did a couple of shows in Italy, uh, which was crazy, as you might imagine. Oh, of course, of course. And um, I'll, I'll actually just tell a little story of getting to this place, because it's worth it. Sure, of course. <laughs> um, we played a gig in Rome, uh, and, and we had a wonderful like one-day whirlwind tour of Rome, which was yeah. awesome. So we did the gig, and then we had a tour bus. So we had a lobby call at, I don't know... 7 a.m. or something like that the next morning, and we were going to drive up to Milan, and it's quite quite a drive, uh, especially in a, in a tour bus. Oh yeah, and we had the um, our our Italian promoter with us on the bus, and so you know we're driving, we're stopping to get fuel and having lunch, and you know getting up there, and it's getting to be kind of late, like it's like six o'clock in the evening, and so I asked the promoter, I said, so what um, What time do we play? She says, oh, whenever you want. <laughs> and I said, well, what, what, about, what about the audience? They will wait. <laughs> and wow. she was very serious, like, well, why are you even asking me these stupid questions? <laughs> anyway, so we play this wonderful gig in Milan. If you remember, we got there, the Indian Saloon. Yeah. And wow. we got there at... Nine o'clock at night or something, and by the time we loaded in, sound check set up. I think we probably started playing it after midnight, yeah. and we played. We had like a two and a half hour, really long yeah. set, mm-hmm. and the audience was just really enthusiastic. And it was one of the best shows on the tour. We became uh, friends with a journalist there, and he did uh, pretty lengthy interviews with all of us. And I mentioned in passing. Uh, that I was a fan of Blue Oyster Cult. Uh-huh. And so we stayed in touch afterwards. And so after that t- tour, I started work on a solo album called Music Machine. And um, while I was working on the album, this journalist had written to me and he said, Oh, you know, you mentioned you like Blue Oyster Cult. Well, I just did an interview with Buck Dharma. And I mentioned to him, told him about you, and, and he said he'd really like to meet you. And I said, oh, that'd be well, great. Okay. I'd, I'd love sure. to see him. You know, it was the very first concert I went to. So um, I met Buck, or Don, as he's more familiarly called, and just an awesome, super nice guy, very smart. 
Um, and I was in the middle of making this album, and there was one song I had that was almost kind of like a blues ballad, like a classic blues sure. ballad, like almost like a whiter shade of pale kind mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. thing. And I thought, wow, he would be the guy to, to play a solo on this mm-hmm. song. <laughs> so, you know, you, you already have no as an answer, so you might as well ask. So I, right. I, I, I don't know if I called him or I emailed him, something like that. And I said, hey, would you, would you do me a huge favor, a huge honor, and, and play a guitar solo on this song? I'll, I'll send you a song, and if you like it, great. If you don't, no big deal. No harm, no foul. And uh, so I, I sent it to him, and um, a couple of days go by, and, and uh, the phone rings, and it's Buck Darmo on the phone. And he said, hey, Eric, uh, yeah, you know, I listened to your song. And I'm thinking, uh-huh, yeah, right. And, uh, yeah, you know, I, I really like it, and, uh, you know, I'll definitely, definitely play on it. And would you mind if I, I tried singing it, too? Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, like, you can play keyboards on it if you, you want. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> so, anyway, he, came, he, he um, uh, BOC did a show at the Canyon Club in oh, yeah. um, uh, Agoura Hills, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Is. yeah. Um, and I, I had a studio in Chatsworth at the time just kind of north, straight north from there. And so we went to the BOC concert, and then the next day, uh, Don and his wife came out to my studio. Wow. And, uh, you know, he cut the vocal and... Fantastic. Just had a really nice day. Wow. And just was, we jammed a little bit, and just was really, really cool. And I didn't feel any, like, divide between, like, here's awesome. this mega True. superhero 70s rock star... And I'm just, you know, a guy. Yeah. And um, it was great. That's and, really uh, cool. Just, uh, I can't say enough good things about that guy. That's really cool. So, there you and go. And a nice little add-on for your solo album, too. That's right. Hey, you know what? He did a nice job. That's fantastic. That's <laughs> great. That's great. So, where um, where do each of you kind of hail from? Where do you, where do you, where'd you grow up? Or, or uh... I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware. Delaware. And then right after I graduated high school, I left and moved to Las Vegas had a, a gig there. I played for, did a gig one time for Rosalind Kind, who turns out to be Barbara Streisand's half-sister. Sure, sure. So she uh, called up uh, my dad, actually, and said, you know, mind if I take your son to Las Vegas? And my dad said, well, oh, hey, what a coincidence. He just graduated. Give, <laughs> give the boy a shot. Get him out of here. Yeah, yeah, give him a job. Get, so, get a job. <laughs> I went to Las Vegas. And so were you playing, were you playing through school and... and Growing up, oh yeah, when I was in high school, then that would be you know weekend gigs that I got to do, and I would get called out to go to New York, go to Philadelphia, go play, and then go to school. Cool, upright, electric, all all the above. Uh, Electric bass mainly. I didn't really get into um, upright until I was a senior, and then you know my dad, music teacher and wonderful sax player himself, and graded advice you know, might want to know how to play that upright bass you never know that's you never know. <laughs> and his other great one was uh, better learn how to read because I, I just like to play and so that's what I kept telling my dad I just want to play I hear the song I hear the part I just want to play it and he goes what well, should learn how to read so I already know how to read treble clef and bass clef was the foreign territory oh, yeah. so I was like oh okay great now the first bass is an F it's A why do they do that why Figured it out, and so okay, got over that hurdle, know where the notes are, and then my dad said, Well, he says the rhythms just reoccur over and over and over. He says, So here, so he wrote out four different rhythms for me. He says, just memorize them. 
And so what do you mean? He goes, well, just look at it so you don't have to think about it anymore. Just memorize what that pattern is. You'll never have to read it again. You just have to look at what the notes are. And that was such great advice. All of a sudden, overnight, I can read. I can fly. Cool. It was great. So <laughs> that was a great education there. So then uh, he said, you know, got me an upright bass. And I went, okay, this is kind of fun. And I remember him asking me, well, what do you like about it? And I, I said... It has more notes on it. And I, when I thought about it, it was, well, okay, I, I'm just playing some notes at a tune. But, you know, rhythmically, it was like, oh, I don't have to go that far yet. I can still move my fingers. And uh, anyway, I got better. Yeah, fret, <laughs> fretless the, provides yeah, more opportunities, yes, right? More and more slide up and down the scale. Both good and bad. And good and bad. <laughs> you know what's interesting about, about Dawn's reading is... Um, when I met Don, I must have been about 17 or 18 years old, something mm-hmm. like that. Don was a few years older, in mid-20s or something. <laughs> yeah. This is my water. Yes. yes. And we had done sessions, and we both worked with a singer, a friend of ours, um, Don more so than me. Um, and Mark and I were doing demos and which turned into pretty serious demos, which turned into the first album. Cool. And we'd worked with one bass player, and he was kind of, you know, typical L.A., Hollywood, rock and roll bass player, and he played all the right notes, and it's fine, but just kind of like, well, you know, Mark's a guitar player. Mark, could, he could do that. Right. <laughs> and maybe sure. better sometimes. Okay. So um, we thought, you know, we really need a bass player, like right. a real bass player, a guy that, you know, comes in and, you know, Chris Squire, Getty Lee, Paul McCartney, sure. one of those kind of guys. Sure. You know, sure. Not just a guy that plays the roots, because no. we can, I yeah, can, yeah, I could yeah. even do that. Yeah. So, you know, Don and I had become friends, and the first sessions we did, what made it so easy was Don was a great reader. Oh, yeah. And there was some joke you had early on, and maybe it came from your dad, or that, that that I can read fly shit. Oh, <laughs> wow. That came from Las Vegas. Okay. <laughs> and funny story. There you go. So, I had a reputation that I could read fly shit. And so, one day, I'm playing a show, and a fly flew on my music stand and took a crap, and it was a little dot, and, and I thought, an this is the time, <laughs> and so I figured, I'm going to read it, and so I was off, and it was all wobbly for a while, but you know, I had to prove it, yes, Don Schiff can read fly shit. It's been established. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's this joke, there's a there's a visual joke in a, in a Warner Brothers, Bugs Bunny, symf- one, one of the symphony where Bugs yeah. Bunny con- uh, 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 conducts the symphony, the orchestra, yeah. at the Hollywood Bowl. There's a there's a fly shit joke in there where where the, he's sitting there and all of a sudden lands on the score and then and Bugs Bunny looks and he looks really angry he doesn't talk through this whole thing it's just it's Chuck Jones so he's just yeah. all facial expression and he looks and he reaches in his thing and he gets out an eraser and erases the thing and and back to the thing it's like it was a fly shit joke fly shit on the oh, I missed that one yeah. Don and I, all of us, are big fans of the Giovanni Jones. Oh yes, episode, yes, yes, the, yes, the yes. singer, and then yeah, of course. And the thing that we always have, like tenor, uh, it's like Leopold. It's Leopold. 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 Yeah, exactly. That's a running joke. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so so what what kind of brought us together was Don's reading ability, and he also was playing the Chapman stick at the time, which was exciting. And of course, 
Don reading on the Chapman stick was not like reading on a Fender P bass because it's yeah. different tuning and all that. But um, that's kind of what brought him in, and it was only after we worked with him a little bit it was like, oh, he's really good. <laughs> <laughs> not only can he not only can he read the notes, but he can improve on the notes yeah. we've written. Oh, nice! And does this groove thing where he can make the you know when the drummer starts rushing or something, he can kind of pull him back, or if he drags, he can pull him forward, and he can fix things. So yeah. let's put the bass on really late in the production. And that's that's kind of how yeah. we've made records. Yeah. Cool. Um, the idea, of, you know, the old school way of where you have the bass <clears throat> player and the drummer like tracking basics. We don't do that. Hmm. All we, right. We kind of do it. We do actually. We don't even do drums first. We we'll usually put <laughs> keyboards or guitar down yeah. first, and then we have you know some great drummers. So you great just stick, a, you just stick a metronome in your in your yep. in your cans and, and go and yep. we play the program drums and then oh, and then yeah. replace. Sure, yeah. sure, sure, sure. And um, then you know Don comes in and. Makes magic, and we actually with we, his magic stick. We're, we're we're far off the subject of where he came from. Oh, anyway, hey, the, it's free form. It's just a stream of consciousness. Wherever it goes is wherever it goes. There's um, there's some kind of signature rhythmic elements in the band, and the the bass is certainly one of the things. But Don is definitely not like the. Typical rock and roll bass player no, that no, pedals eighth notes, right. and you know he just follows the drummer's kick drum. In fact, he almost got stabbed for <laughs> yeah. doing that one time. But that's, that's <laughs> refusing story. to do that. <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, one of the probably main rhythmic elements in the band is Mark's acoustic guitar strumming. Ah, uh, gotcha. Yeah, and you know anyone can strum a guitar. Sure, right? I can strum a guitar. Um, I was very good at that on guitar. Yeah, very just drums, drums, drums. But Mark uh, kind of has, not kind of, he has, he's turned it into like a signature core sound of the band, and it really establishes the groove. Because, you know, you can play at 120 beats per minute and make it sound really slow and relaxed, or you can play at 120 beats per minute and it'll sound really exciting right, and, right. And, and edgy. And, Sounds like a dance song or something, right? Yeah. Right, so uh, we, we kind of don't have traditional roles that way and yeah i rely on it like a, any other band you know i try to cue my ear on the drummer and find out what limb they rely on for time usually it's the hi-hat but you never know so in this band it's no just put your ear on march strumming guitar that'll be the metronome <laughs> that'll be where the dead center lock of feel is and well, this 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 it sounds is what I mean, what I what I keep hearing here is this this eschewing of convention and the rock and roll music convention is is almost like a um oh, what's the word almost like a uh, progressive take on rock music. <laughs> How about that? We actually we actually did a, a one of um, one of the things that we did that I thought was kind of interesting is uh, like you know it's well documented that. Peter Gabriel has a couple of records where there are no cymbals on the entire record, um, so that you can hear things like the acoustic guitars and whatnot. How does he sleep at night? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. But um, yeah. and and you know it just allows everything to be bigger because the cymbals sort of suck up so much space. And we actually did that on Brutal Architecture. I believe there are no power chords. That's right. Oh, there are no wow. power chords. No power chords. That was on Brutal Architecture on the whole album. <laughs> on the whole yeah. album. Wow. Yes. We're gonna get away with that. So imagine if Peter Gabriel and Van Halen were to walk into the same room, that one or the other would like, there'd be some kind of implosion or something. Symbols, right. yeah. <laughs> no symbols. Yeah. So. And wasn't uh, wasn't Terry Bozio famous for no ride symbol? Mm-hmm. Didn't he? I think so. I, I 
I thought like the UK missing and person. missing persons. Like huh. there was something about he didn't want to play Ride because some some crazy <laughs> brilliant reason yeah. right. for it. So when you hear like all those great records, there's no Ride symbol. Mm-hmm. Right. Who knows? <laughs> so no no Manchester music for him, right? Right. So, right, right. Well, you know, with with the Brutal Architecture album, it wasn't that um, you know we we necessarily had this big sonic vision like maybe Peter Gabriel had with the no symbols it was we wanted to push ourselves to not just do the obvious thing like in addition to no power chords there are no synth pads mm. on that album okay, and right. in fact I, I kind of don't really do synth pads and in, in fact in my 40s when I started playing with John Payne and the Asia spinoff project I had to do pads for the first time, oh, yeah. like since I was in high school, and I had to come up with these big, beautiful pad sounds like Jeff Downs uses, and it was kind of weird. It's like, wait a minute, I, I don't. This isn't what I do. I, I, I play melodies and leads and solos and pull you out stuff of your bubble. And, so, yeah. yeah. Right, right. So uh, did you feel like you weren't doing anything, just holding your fingers down and going, well? Well, you do that working. with a Mellotron or with a Hammond, but with know, a pad, the, you just yeah, but a Mellotron is Yeah, know. but a Mellotron, you can't re- really think of it as pads because, first of all, you can't voice things too dense because right. it just sounds like a train wreck. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the notes don't last that long, right. so you really have to kind of because the Mellotron's all out. about oscillation, right? I mean, each each note is kind of like a well, it's tapes. It's it's tape. Uh, strips, ah, actual okay. analog tape. So it's—I oh, okay. don't know how many keys it is. Two and a half octaves. <laughs> the more notes you play, the more power it sucks, and the flatter it goes. <laughs> it's a wonderful, terrible instrument. And, and you have to—you have to play it a, a really certain way. But so, yeah, it's so revered. That—that <laughs> that was kind of the the thinking behind that album. It's that we we just wanted to avoid the usual kind of. Rock, rock and roll cliches, cliches, and this right. was this was in the very very early '90s, which was technically still the '80s, I think. It's you know what it was almost for me because um, I fought it a little bit because it's as a guitar player, it's like that's what you do, sure. And, and but the more I thought about it, it was like you know this is kind of a it's like the anti Trevor Rabin yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was like you know because I, I always felt like I mean I, I love the Trevor Rabin yes. But it's hard to see that in the continuum of what Steve Howe did mm-hmm. because it's so different. And a lot of it is just because there's big, you know, rock power chords. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And then, of course, mid-90s, all of that came, and it was mostly power chords. Right. Stuff yeah. In with the whole grunge and more the alt-rock movement. And that I, kind of I thing. was also traumatized in the 80s um, by Eddie Van Halen. Um, not by Eddie Van Halen directly. I'm sure he's a very nice man. He's a wonderful guitar player. But I was traumatized show by on, show all the, the guitar where Eddie Van Halen traumatized you. Yes, I, I was traumatized by all the idiot guitar players that were trying to be oh, Eddie Van, uh, Van trying Halen. to hammer yes. pull, hammer pull, and so hammer like pull. rather than playing a melody, they'd make a horsey sound with their guitar Ooh, and the and yeah, the, yeah, and the yeah. you know vibrato bar and all that. So whereas Eddie Van Halen actually had some musicianship and could actually yes. you know do. Magic, make magic with that. I'm, I'm sure if I was ever lucky enough to play with Eddie Van Halen, I'd be completely blown away oh, by the guy. Sure. But his influence on the guitar players in my neighborhood was not a positive <laughs> one. Right. So I, that, Every... I think I projected that onto poor Mark as well. Yeah. Like, not that Mark makes horsey sounds. With no, his guitar, hammer he does no, 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 I don't do that. But of course, <laughs> uh, playing the stick, that's a whole lot of hammer pulls and, 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 yes. and taps, and yeah, so. 
Well, I those first few, like the first album, Van Halen album, the first gigs that they played everywhere, Eddie played behind a curtain because he, he didn't want anybody ripping off his style, uh-huh. ripping off his technique. How how and, and then MTV came around and said, "Nope, we got you. Got to play on camera." And it's like, "Oh shit!" So then yeah. then they and then then you're driving up and down suburban garage, you know, suburban neighborhoods and hearing it every in every garage. And see, and that's what always turned me off as a guitar player. I never wanted to be the solo guy out front, you know, you know, waving my guitar around like so much symbolism. Um, I I wanted to. I, I was a rhythm guy. I was I was in jazz combo. I wanted to play those really weird, obscure, diminished minor seventh chords and those you know all those little weird you know. I had this big, thick, jazzy book of chords and was just learning chords. I wanted to be Guitar George. I, I think <laughs> I think rhythm guitar is vastly undervalued. I agree because you think there's there's. The lead guitar and the not lead guitar. Yeah, well, the not like, lead guitar is important, and that's like I mentioned the yeah. Mark strumming. It's yeah. like that's a huge deal. The sound of ACDC is Malcolm, not Angus. No, that's, right. yeah. that's the yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, because I mean Angus just comes in and does the old solo, you know, the real picky solo, but it's all it's that driving power chord beat. Yeah, if you're a rhythm guitar player without good groove, you're a lousy oh, rhythm guitar yeah, player. Yeah. yeah. One of the bands that I always admired, um, and it might be after or outside of you guys' sphere, might might not, but Love and Rockets. Daniel Ash yeah. has this, took rhythm guitar to this place where he's having, he has a rhythm guitar, but he throws all his effects pedals that the soloist would have onto his rhythm guitar, and he's mm-hmm. doing all kinds of key scratches and um, real... Uh, and lots of 12 string, and he's a really amazing kind of effects-driven rhythm player. And I always really liked that about Bauhaus and about <coughs> Love and Rockets and, and, and even the stuff he did, uh, uh, even... Um, Tones on Tail. Tones on Tail, thank you. Uh, yeah, and I love all of that. So I'm, a, I'm an old school, you know, as much as I lo- you know, grew up on classic rock and soft rock and then New Wave and everything, I'm also kind of like an old school goth, too, so, but... Mark and I actually, uh, we really liked Love and Rockets, and, and when we were doing the first record, they were a reference. Like we'd say, okay, now are, are we pushing it too? Are we pushing it too much like Love and Rockets? Because this yeah. is still when, like, this is the what the peak of '90s postmodern, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. whatever you call yeah. it, whatever Love and Rockets is, whatever that kind of music yeah. is. Well, kind of, well, really, kind of, they started off kind of well. They they wanted to depart from Bauhaus. They weren't didn't mm-hmm. want to necessarily be. Punk rock and they or uh, post punk and they definitely didn't really want to be as theatrical as Bauhaus was. They wanted to get more to. They're more bluesy, I would say, especially their second album, Earth, Sun, Moon. Where if if any of their work would be considered progressive or a prog rock type band, type album, that one definitely would. Lots of twelve string guitar, lots of um, you know, a good harmonies and vo- with the vocals and stuff too. So. There's a there's a term that was thrown around uh, in the '70s a lot, art rock. Yeah, and I think that's m- kind of a, a world where maybe progressive rock and punk actually kind of have a weird intersection. Yeah, yeah. post punk meets meets yeah. avant garde or or prog rock. Split ends was sure. kind of like that. As Kate well. Bush, yeah. um, uh, um, Brian Ferry, even though he has his roots in uh, glam rock, he definitely mm-hmm. went into went into art rock territory. Even later, Talking Heads, 
Mm-hmm. Um, some of the Peter Gabriel stuff that was more alternative mm-hmm. than... Because than, he definitely walked that fine sword edge between the alternative and the classic rock or prog rock worlds. It's, um, it's funny, on our, our first record, um, and, and uh, Eric sang a lot more, which he's reprised on the new record, which mm-hmm. I think is really cool, because I, I thought it was a big part of our sound. And um, we, we definitely would get into danger of, of that, uh, well, I don't know, danger, but I mean, uh, because Eric Eric has a very Peter Murphy kind mm-hmm. of voice, and so like songs like uh, Killing Joke was probably the closest sure. we ever got to that, where it was that sort of Tears for Fears, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. Love and Rockets, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Had to be careful of the, like, out-of-control, squirrely vibrato. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Ah, 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 yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big Peter Murphy fan, too. Yes. I, For that reason, we never released our cover of Bella Lugosi's Dead. Oh. <laughs> right. Wow, what you could do with Bella, on Bella with a stick. Holy yeah, cow. Yeah. That would be a cover. <laughs> wow. Wow. Um, so, Mark, um, uh, let's talk about what your, your kind of uh, origins in music and, and where you started from. And, and Yeah, I, I was born in the Midwest in Springfield, Missouri, but I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and so that was kind of where uh, uh, I, my musical interest came to life. And it was really, I mean, my dad was really my biggest influence. Um, you know, he was into Ricky Nelson, as I mentioned before, the Beach Boys, the Beatles, Elvis... <clears throat> And the Kingston Trio. Oh, yeah, Kingston like Trio, all, yeah. All of his favorites. And so, you know, one by one. And the Moody Blues. And the Moody Blues were kind of the gateway into all of the progressive music for me. And that was the first big concert I went to, actually, in in 1978 and that kind of thing. And so, and, and there, there was also some, you know, there was lots of Southern rock around when I sure, was growing up. Of so the, the real melodic and, guitar playing and... and, and, and I was a fan of the Atlanta rhythm section. Oh, there you go. And, and the Allman yeah. Brothers Allman, and, and kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. You know, very melodic, uh, you know, lots of Les Pauls and that kind of thing. That guy played, a, uh, the guy from Atlanta rhythm section played a gold top Les Paul. But, uh, so, you know, that's that's a lot of what, what um, sort of shaped my my early music stuff was really what my dad was listening to at the time. And he was into all the same stuff I was into. You know, he, we, we went to see The Who together uh, in, in 1980 and... And uh, just all all sorts of stuff. The only band that he didn't like that I liked was um, was Rush. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Couldn't couldn't handle the vocals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Getty era, yeah. But uh, yeah, so I mean, you know that that combination of the the classic Beatles, Elvis. I did. He took me to see Elvis three times. Fantastic. So yeah, um, that's the one thing I never got to do. He, he you know he died when I was eight or seven or eight. So I didn't get to do that. My ex-wife saw Elvis in Vegas once, so that was cool. But uh, probably well, saw you play yeah, there. You go. Yeah. It was in the seventies, so her parents used to spend a lot well, that, of time in that's, Vegas. What's interesting is he didn't really tour much. So no, it's no. like he toured once he the, did Vegas. That was it. He was he was in Vegas, and then he did some stuff in like Reno and Tahoe, and then the Deep South. Yeah, like Alabama. Well, Georgia, pretty much after what was it? The 60, 68 yeah. comeback special was it 68, 66? Yeah. Yeah, 68. 68, 68 comeback special, black leather, and then boom, it was Vegas pretty much, and then all that. And, like and tours said, in the South. South, tours in like the like South. Like local. Yeah. 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 And you sing some of the gospel stuff too. Yeah. Hmm. My uh, my sphere of influence with uh, music from that predates me was, was there was a. My parents got divorced, and I my mom got remarried, and my stepdad listened to this radio station in. It was the first radio station in Denver. It was called. KLZ, 
And it was originally the news station. And eventually another station came in and took over KOA. They have like a, this 85,000 watt blowtorch and you can actually pick up KOA out here on the, on the 210 wow. sometimes. That's, that's how, and their transmitter just, it's amazing. There's this little station called 56KLZ and they had this, this was in the 70s and 80s, late 70s, early 80s, and they had this, it was mostly a country station. They played old country and western, old grand old opry music, that kind of thing. Modern country, whichever was modern at the time, Kenny and Dolly and uh, Loretta Lynn and all that. But then they would mix in uh, rock and roll crossovers. Rock and roll music that people who liked old country also liked. Elvis, Buddy Holly... Uh, then you hear like a Tennessee Ernie Ford and, um, you know, uh, this, that, and the other thing. And it was just this really good mix. So I got all this stuff from the 50s and 60s into my head. And Roy Orbison and stuff like that. And that no, no, never went away. So, again, it's that whole thing of being in the stuff my parents were into. What about you? Where did, where did you, your, where do you uh, hail from? I was actually born in Hollywood. I'm the only uh, one. Wow. I'm the only person ever to be born in Hollywood. Um, I never lived in Hollywood. My my parents lived in, I think, Sherman Oaks at the time, but my dad was a lecturer at the Griffith Park Observatory. Fantastic. So he gave the planetarium shows. Fantastic. um, And uh, anyway, (laughs) when it was time for me to be born, um, he was giving a lecture at the Griffith Park Observatory, and I don't know if my mom was there or somewhere nearby, so they went to the closest hospital, which was Hollywood Presbyterian oh. Hospital, and mm. there, there you go. I was born in Hollywood. Yeah. Oh, the same place. Yeah. Oh, there you go. So Don's son was born. Oh, cool, place. cool. Yeah. And Don's not a Presbyterian. Either. <laughs> but, but it was a local hospital. Yeah, right. Well, you're in. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I I grew up in uh, not a very musical family, really, um, but. We would always go to my um, grandparents' house for holidays and whatever, just to be social. And the adults would watch things like, you know, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade sure. that I could care less about. Or they'd watch football games that I could care less right, about. Or right. uh, anything that I could care less about yeah. as a you know little kid. Um, I have an aunt who is nine or ten years older than me. So she's quite a bit younger than my mom. Sure. And she had moved out of the house recently, but she left her record collection there. Ding! <laughs> so they had a little turntable, and so I had my head, you know, giant headphones with, yeah. the, with the coiled you know, cable that spins around. And the two albums uh, from her collection that I really, really connected with were uh, Deep Purple Machine Head. Nice. And the Moody Blues, Every Good Boy Deserves Favor. Mm. And so those were kind of like the two first, like, real albums. Because, I, I, you know, you hear songs. On the sure. Radio, and you like this song, you like this song. That, yeah. But those, that was my exposure to AOR. Wow, yeah. You know, to like totally the full deep dive, album right, right. And, like, getting into... Sure. The, sure. Was the idea of Every Good Boy Does Favor the... Lines. Musical, yeah, yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Or it's the well, English, every good boy does fine. fine. Or yeah. bird deserves fudge. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Every another good one, bird yeah. does fly. And, <laughs> you know, every yes, yes, and then of course the was the other one was just face. You know, the yeah, right yeah. clutch just face. So, so I got yeah, I got into those uh, uh, two albums, and then the first LP. <laughs> that's what they called them. The first LP I ever bought was. 
uh, ELO out of the blue. Fantastic. And I bought it because the cover was really cool. It had this really cool spaceship. <laughs> oh, what kind happened to the thing. album art? Yeah. yeah. And how many how many buying choices have we all made? Yeah. Yeah. Just based on the album art. And I'm sure it's, they were playing it in the in the record. Type it's funny because that Every Good Boy Deserves Favor is another one of those where you could buy it just for the cover. Sure, <laughs> sure, sure. Exactly. Typo negative bloody kisses. Bought that out. Or I, actually, I, I grabbed it out of the. Uh, the swag closet at the at the TV station where we did the music. You grab that, listen to it, fell in love with it. And a Deep Purple Machine Head, I, I think I was probably in my 20s by the time I realized that a machine head was like the tuning keys. Uh, yeah, yeah, I didn't yeah, know. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know that? Up? Yeah. But you think, oh, machine head. Yeah, oh, that got is, by me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, what but, about, so, so anyway, I'll just... Oh, sure, sure. So, so I had ELO, and I had Moody Blues, and I got more Moody Blues albums, and I got more Deep Purple albums. And then I used to go to um, Venice Beach because I had a, a friend whose parents were divorced. And so, like, you'd go with the father one time and the mother one sure. time. The father lived in Venice Beach, which is where you go when you're divorced in Los Angeles <laughs> in sure. the 70s. Yeah. And they would have these kind of wild record stores. as like kind of little hole-in-the-wall things or they'd have, you know, outdoor street fair kind of things and you get records. And so I saw... Um, what I thought was an ELO album that I'd never seen before. I'm like, oh, this this looks really cool. I, I didn't know they had this one, so I bought it. And so, you know, took it back and listened to it. Well, it wasn't ELO, it was ELP. Oh. Uh, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Yeah, and yeah. so, again, uh, serendipity. Yeah. Um, I just loved it. I thought the piano playing was amazing and the organ playing and then this kind of weird like synthesizer stuff that sure. was going on. Weird and, spacey stuff. And, yeah. and then of course I you know, had friends like, oh, well, if you like ELP, you've got to listen to Yes. And if you like Yes, mm-hmm. you've got to listen to Jethro Tull. And if you like Jethro Tull, you've got to mm-hmm. listen to Procol Harum and et cetera. So down the, down the, that's how it all happened. Fantastic. Fantastic. What was the, uh, what was the first album you bought, Mark? Gosh, the first album I've... I don't know, because, I mean, I basically just listened to my dad's records. Um, you know, the one that I didn't... The biggest influence on, on my musical taste from, from way, way, way back that I didn't even mention is his love for James Bond music. Yeah. I know, like... Oh, Bonnie Norman and, yeah. Uh, John Barry. John right? Barry, yeah. yeah. So, and, and Honor Majesty's Secret Service was kind of the first record I remember Fantastic. playing constantly in the house, and yeah. we covered that song on our... Uh, on our recent EP, so on the Supernatural Highways. And um, so, yeah, the first records that I bought were really kind of, I would get into certain bands and kind of flesh out his collection and be be a completist. Um, Probably my first uh, musical obsession was Glenn Campbell, followed by Elvis, followed by uh, the Monkees, followed Mm -hmm. by the Beatles, because my dad said, if you like the Monkees, you should really listen to the Beatles, (laughs) and uh, and that kind of thing. So, I I mean, I I guess those are really kind of the first things that I remember. Um, I do remember that that, uh, the transformative uh, year of my life was when I moved from, um, from Atlanta to Los Angeles. It was the summer before my senior year of high school, which is a traumatic time to move. Yeah. And you know, I was in a band and all this kind of stuff, and and so I moved out here and met Eric almost immediately when I moved, or at least once school started and we had a class together. And so I met Eric, and we you know started talking about music, and it was clear that we 
were kind of on the same wavelength and he had a band and I started hanging out with them and so I so I then pulled that with Eric and I said if you like all these bands you got to check this out and I handed him a quarter of the Crimson King. All oh, right. Man. Cool. Cool. That's right. Um, real quick, back to uh, Glenn Campbell. Have you seen the, the, the music video that I, he did? I have not. Oh, the music video, yes. I the, haven't seen the movie. No, oh, no. But yeah, he did a music video. Uh, he's battling, I'm not going to miss you. Right, yeah, yeah. He's battling senility. It was one of the most touching, bittersweet, heartbreaking, but beautiful things I've seen in a very long yeah, time. Yeah, I, um, I saw him on his last tour, which was only about a year or so ago. Yeah. Um, and it was amazing. I mean, he... He would uh, he would get lost from time to time, and he'd forget the words and just kind of shrug it off, and they'd move on yeah. to the next song and stuff like that. But it was like he wanted to get out there and do it one sure, more time, sure, and yeah. that so that's that's probably some of the most sentimental music of for me course, is you know the, the, the all, all of those uh, Wichita linemen and yeah. you know, the, those great Jimmy Webb songs. Sure. Oh yeah, yeah. What was the first album you got, Don? Uh, embarrassingly, I can remember the first record I bought. Tommy Rowe, Dizzy. Ooh, I <laughs> get dizzy. Oh, that's great. I love that song. Uh, and then the first album I can remember buying is the David Bowie Diamond Dogs. Oh, wow. yeah. yeah. Bought that for my dad for his birthday, figuring we'll have music we can share. I don't think he liked it. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. As they stared at the makeup on his face. Um, Those David Bowie chord progressions are illegal. (laughs) Unbelievably illegal. Yeah. You can't go from that chord to that chord. No. (laughs) But he did. (laughs) But he did. Um, My first album was Jay Giles Band Freeze Frame. Bought it with my own money in 1980. Loved, I still have it. Almost wore the grooves off of it, but it's such a great album. And again, that deep diving, not just centerfold, not just freeze frame, but. Songs like Piss on the Wall and, and uh, uh, Insane, Insane Again with all kinds of weird, you know, weird kind of clockworky type stuff in there. Such a great album. And the, the harmonica player, I think his name was Magic Dick. And, uh, and he played the, one of those big old harmonicas, you know, and, and oh, so, such good stuff. What a great album. My first musical, musical obsession, however, was Prince. When I was 15 in 1985, after seeing Purple Rain, I wanted to be Prince. And I was already familiar with 1999, but I wasn't familiar with anything before that. I hadn't heard For You or Prince or Dirty Mind or Controversy or any of that stuff. Even though Prince was on SNL in the 80s playing Controversy. But after after Purple Rain, that was it. And I was obsessed. And I still have all the all the vinyl and all the, all the music at home. So... That was good stuff. And talk about illegal chord progressions and some of the some of the chords that man comes up with. I mean, just even just the opening chord of Purple Rain is just this crazy diminished minor fifth, seventh, eighth something. I don't know, but it's crazy. So move your fingers around on the guitar until it sounds like what you want. Yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And then tune some things. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's been nice. I keep saying this on the podcast, but it's nice to see him in the forefront again. He's got the fro again. And, He's wearing the third eye sunglasses and making appearances on the Golden Globes and on TV shows and stuff. And for me, it's nice to see him. I think the world's a little better with him just kind of out in public, you know, being seen. It's nice. I, I, I'm, I'm a diehard Prince fan as well. But, um, but I will say that uh, I realize that my favorite era is the Revolution stuff. And, sure. and a lot of that sure. is because I realize that I'm a bigger Wendy and Lisa fan. Yeah, of course, of course. Wendy Melbourne and yeah, Lisa. And yeah, that's... 
Plus, I like I like the 1999 album a lot too. Des, the, the the addition of Des Dickerson, Jill Jones, mm-hmm. and um, uh, um, Andre Simone kind of floated in around there. I think he was on the Minneapolis Genius album in '77, and then he kind of came back in with 1999 a little bit, and then came back around again during the like in uh, the parade uh, uh, under the cherry moon time. Andre mm-hmm. played on some of that, and also in the uh, Sign of the Times too. So cool, yeah. What was your first album, Aaron? Oh, I said it. It was uh, said it. ELO Out of the Blue. Oh. ELO Out of the Blue. See, yeah. I pay attention. That was That's the first weird. One I, bought. <laughs> I didn't realize that I don't remember the first album I bought. Yeah. yeah. It's really strange. I can't, I can't imagine what it would be either. Yeah. I can remember we had a hard day's night. We had Sergeant Pepper. I just don't remember. I remember all the mind. things. Yeah, my dad. Yeah, my mom. Yeah, I, I, when I moved out, I stole a fair number of albums from my mom's collection. I have an original. An original Beatles Hard Day's Night pressing the red, yeah. black, the red, yeah. Yeah. red, black, and white cover from the movie with all the movie uh, stills yeah. on it. Yeah. I stole that big thick vinyl, and yeah. uh, and I, I also got Mama's and Papa's Greatest Hits and um, something else too. Might have been Jan Joplin's Greatest Hits too. But there's a couple things I grabbed, so just kind of had to. Yeah. But then my ex-wife, and then we merged our album collections, and then split them back up again, and and. Uh, she had a lot of old Beatles on vinyl too. She's actually got a copy of Butcher album. No, she doesn't have the Meat album. But I <laughs> knew a guy that was a bass player in in Denver, a band called Wanker, and uh, they're a lot of fun. And um, their 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 bass player back in the late eighties, early nineties was named Tony Salazar, and he had the biggest Beatles collection of anyone I've ever seen. Multiple copies of every album in every various condition, every different pressing, every different everything. Right. And he had four copies of the Meat album. Four. Wow. Four. And he he actually gave us a copy of Magical Mystery Tour with the tour book in it, still oh, attached in it, wow. and my ex-wife still has it. So that was pretty cool because that's the first that thing I think was ripped right. Yeah. yeah, the thing just ripped right out. Yeah, Fool on the Hill and all yeah. that. I'll, I'll bet he has a Luke Skywalker action figure in its original packaging. Yeah, too. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Actually, I've got some old stuff too. But, uh, but uh, yeah, yeah. I miss albums. I miss. I'm. I'm oh. It's nice that the hipsters are kind of bringing vinyl back, but I don't know that it's going to last. But we'll see. But uh, it's nice that it's nice to see artists putting other than. Other than the dance, uh, other than the the people who get played in dance clubs, mm-hmm. putting out stuff on vinyl again. I, yeah, I I've like seen that. Uh, Porcupine Tree just released like all of their stuff on vinyl. And, yeah, uh, they actually just released uh, Kevin Gilbert's Thud on mm-hmm. vinyl yesterday. Wow! I have a couple of um, right around the time when vinyl went away. I saw Robin Hitchcock in concert, and I had ordered something from his ordering service and it didn't quite go through and so I actually talked to him, went up to a show afterward and talked to him and, and his person who handles stuff and he wound up sending me a copy because he was going through changing management of his ordering catalog service or whatever and uh, he wound up sending me with his own hands a copy of the album that I had ordered of Mossy, Mossy Liquor which actually is from this the shirt I'm wearing um, sent me a copy of the album autographed it, wrote a little thing, drew a little thing on it and then actually Packaged it himself with duct tape in the packet and wrote out the the postal slip and with his signature on it. <laughs> so I have That's all of that together, and I was like, That's "Wow, great. yeah, that was really nice of him." So, you know, with our albums, we've always 
um, taken the packaging pretty seriously. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the cover art and um, sure. Um, you know, I brought that for you by the way. Did you get one? You, uh, yeah, you guys gave me this, and I don't. That's the EP with the the James Bond cover. Supernatural out. Highways. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think you gave me the EP, but I definitely have a copy of Refuel already. Okay, and there was one other thing. Okay, okay, cool. In any case, um, yeah, we you know always take the cover art really, really seriously. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we do the you know the nice full color printed booklet, sure. and lyrics. I uh, write liner notes. We're very exhausted with the credits, um, and it goes back to the vinyl days. Like, yes, you know you had an album and you listened to the album with your giant headphones with the coily little yeah. weird cable that. And you know you you follow read along the lyrics. And, oh yeah, read the liner notes. Yeah, and, yeah. And so we wanted to recreate that, and I I believe in that a lot. And I obviously with the latest album we've done the same thing. It's a six panel digi pack with a sixteen page, twenty page color booklet, something like that. Um, but I did see. Uh, the powers being used for evil instead of good at one point, where uh, especially in the like the late '90s and early 2000s, mm-hmm. um, a lot of the European labels and some Japanese companies would do these just outrageous packaging things mm-hmm. like book binding. And, sure, and, sure. You know, instead of a 16 page, we'll do 32 pages, and you know all these wild photos and just over the top artwork. And the album would be a complete piece of crap. Oh yeah, um, yeah. And so it's uh, you know not judging a book by its cover, sure, sure, kind of thing. Sure, so sure. I uh, that certainly didn't deter me. I, I didn't put out a plain rap album, you know, just a white cover with yes. <laughs> right, simple text right, on it. Right, right, right. Um, but I also didn't want to go so far with the packaging that it overshadowed the music right. anyway. Because ultimately, you're buying music. You're sure. not buying an art book. Sure, yeah. sure. Yeah, at one point I had a pretty large CD collection. I think it was well over a thousand CDs, and and some of the artists. I, I was always a fan of the Digipack because it was more paper than plastic, mm-hmm. and it felt more like an album. Um, th- there were a couple of. Uh, I think the the Beatles re-released in the '90s. In the no, in the mid 2000s, they re-released all of their album catalogs on little mini CD albums, and it was an actual oh, yeah. jacket. And the, I had the White Album, which was the fold open with the posters, with the, all the stuff that came in the original packaging, but it was a CD. It was all miniaturized. Yeah. So it had the poster. It had the postcards inside, the, the John Paul George Ringo postcards. And I thought that was really cool. That was the only one of all the Beatles ones that I bought. And it was numbered, like embossed and numbered on the back, too. Yeah. And the Beatles on the front in white was embossed, just like the original album was, too. You know, what's interesting about that is um, when you manufacture... CDs or DVDs or Blu-ray or anything like that, the most expensive part is the printing. Sure. It's not the disc. No. You know, the disc costs a buck, a buck yeah. fifty if it's a you know DVD or Blu-ray, two bucks maybe. Yeah. But, um, you know, the packaging, the booklet is the most expensive thing. Mm-hmm. And if you do the digipack, that's... So it's, it's funny how... Uh, your perspective changes. Oh, yeah. You, you yeah. kind of get into what things really cost yeah. and where you put the emphasis. Sure, of course, of course, of course, yeah. Yeah, I was I was like stuff with... back Going back to lyrics and lyric sheets and sitting and listening to whole albums and back in the... When I was obsessed with prints, I would, wasn't always able to afford an album. 
so I'd have to buy the cassette. And the cassettes rarely came with lyric sheets. Yeah. Right. So I would sit with the headphones, a pad of paper, and a pen, and would rewind and rewind and listen and rewind <laughs> and listen and get down every single word. And the, one of the reasons why I obsessively know so many Prince lyrics between 1978 and probably about 1994 is because I'd gone through every single line of every single song huh. that he had and hand wrote those lyrics out and sung along with them. That's how a lot of singers memorize yeah. their lyrics. I know my, my wife Lana does that. She writes out her lyrics sure, sure. at rehearsals yeah. because the act of writing it out yeah. makes you makes you remember what it, they right. are. It's mnemonic device, right? Yeah. Right. yeah that, I'm kind of that way with the Smiths too. And then I wound up typing out my own uh, lyric book, and I actually still have somewhere something that I put together with pictures that I collected and printed out with a copy machine, and actually did all that myself. So. I got into the era of making mix CDs, uh, made mixtapes for friends in high school and stuff, and then I got to where I was able to burn CDs and started making mix CDs with with life, with uh, you know inserts with graphics and everything and, huh. and oh, song nice. lists and wow. got pretty pro- almost like professional quality on a color printer at home with the photo quality paper and all that stuff too. There's a local band um, that used to be. Uh, the now my friend Rex, he's in the Armoires, and he used to be in a band called Skates and Rays. Uh, kind of uh, beach rocky surf, uh, but not quite so surfy, um, with kind of a southern twist to it too. But he when it came time to do. He's also an artist, and so when it came time to do his album artwork, uh, I shot pictures. Some of the stuff he did, this big, glorious uh, kind of uh, sea foam and, and aqua colored uh, um, uh, seahorse. And that became their album cover, and I wound up doing a fold-out and doing all the artwork and putting it all in the layouts so he could send it to the printer and do, do this wow, to do his uh, CD when they, when they did their CD, and it all folds out and looks really nice. So, Where were you uh, 25 years ago? Where were our first album? Where were you 25 years ago? Uh, yeah, I was young. <laughs> younger, much younger. I remember trying to figure all that stuff out the first time. It was not, yeah. Yeah, oh, not yeah. straightforward. Well, I was pretty obsessive about it. I was making making CDs for people, and I didn't want just a dumb old black and white with black type. I wanted, you know, a white white slip of paper, but I wanted color and wanted it to look like a real compilation yeah. album you get from Cleopatra Records or you know some other mm-hmm. or KTEL or something like that. And oh, I actually even that. had my own copyright at the bottom and copyright SaintMichael.com and all oh, that no. stuff. And yeah, it was crazy. Advanced. So. <laughs> so um, Let's talk about, uh, real quick, we're uh, over an hour, but we have no hard out, so let's talk about Refuel. Let's 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 gush about the new stuff. It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everything I've been, I haven't had a chance to sit down with the, with the headphones and deep dive, but everything I'm hearing, it's, 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 it sounds good, it's, it's, uh, it's enjoyable, it's enjoyable. Kind, kind of like how our instrumental roles are in the band, um, nothing is ever simple or, or cut and dried with us. Um, it was uh, it was a rainy night one fall. It was the fall of 2012, and I sent off an email to Mark and Don saying, "Hey, do you guys realize that next year is the 20th anniversary of the first album, and we should do something?" Because <clears throat> um, I'd been I'd been doing solo albums and albums with my wife, and I was working with Asia featuring John Payne and this other band, Big Noise. Um, with Jolyn Turner from Rainbow and so mm-hmm. forth. And, and uh, you know, time just 
slips away oh, as sure. it does. Yeah, it does. And so it had been several years since we, we put out an album. And so the 20th anniversary was kind of like, all right, let's do something. And, and I, I remember specifically writing to Mark saying, um, you know, I just, I, I think I had just finished the Galactic Collective box sets or it was a DVD and two CDs studio album and then DVD and two CDs live version of it and like giant booklets and interviews and 5.1 mixes. And so I said, let's just keep it simple. I don't want to do anything too crazy and let's just make some really great music and put it out. Well, that didn't happen. (laughs) So um, we basically set about writing music for the, what would be the 20th anniversary album and we just wrote too much and we ended up with things that didn't belong on the same album we had this kind of epic uh almost electronic uh, music progressive rock hybrid kind of piece called traveler on the supernatural highways Mm -hmm. and it had started off as like a, a um an overture and a finale piece like okay we'll do this big instrumental overture and then we'll do the finale and we'll reprise some themes from the other songs in the album. But um, I kept writing and, oh yeah, here's kind of a part two. This is nice. And oh, this part five is nice. This is nice. And and I was talking to Don and um, I said, you know, we'll try, you know, writing something. Just the rules are stay at around 120 beats per minute, around E minor, you know, G major, somewhere in there, just so it all kind of goes together. Sure. So Don wrote this awesome, almost kind of fusion jazz stick piece mm-hmm. and we put that all together and we had this 25 minute or something instrumental thing and then we had regular normal vocal songs too and so i thought optimistically oh well you know what we can do we'll just take the big instrumental thing and we'll just cut it up into little pieces and we'll do instrumental and a couple of vocals then an instrumental interlude and a couple of vocal songs and that just sucked. It mm-hmm. just didn't work. Mm-hmm. It was like, well, why are all these instrumental things here? They don't make any sense. And right. then, so the instrumental things kind of got diluted to the point where they were almost annoyances. Yeah. And it didn't have any flow. And so at a certain point, I suggested to the guys, let's just put this big instrumental thing out as an EP. And we'll just, it's, you know, one just yeah. giant instrumental song. And, and we'll do that so that ended up being the supernatural highways ep well we then we we had also uh at the same time we've we've done covers of uh theme music at the same time like uh, on one of our records we did space 1999 we did ufo Ooh. we did uh we did Welcome to the Machine, we nice. did Gypsy by the Moody Blues, and there's like one cover on each record. And so uh, uh, I had always wanted to do, I talked before and gushed about Honor Majesty's Secret Service, oh, yeah. the James Bond theme, and so I said, now's the time, let's let's do it. Nice. And so, uh, so we did that, and we ended up including that, since it was another instrumental standalone piece on the, on the EP. Cool. So that fit with the. the I can't wait to yeah. listen to that. I'm, gonna, yeah. I'm probably going to listen to pop that in the player on the way home because I, I'm, all, big James Bond fan. Dad took me to my first Bond film in '76 for Spy Who Loved Me and have never looked back. And and um and so I've always been a fan. But again, the music connection with the music. But then when I started going back before that, On Her Majesty's Secret Service always really stood out. It's to really me. different. It's <laughs> yeah. really really different, and yeah. it's. 
because of the way that that film is positioned in between, squished in between two Connery films, and with all the stuff, I know all the story behind it, and all why that was that way, and all that, that, that the, the fact that that theme for that movie was stood out in that way made sense, and it made that film even richer for me in many, many different ways. Well, aside from the first film, it's the only one where the vocal song is not the the main title sure. that goes with the sure. credits. Sure. This powerful instrumental yes. was the focal point of that movie, which is yeah. very different. Yeah, and then it, and, and then the whole thing with the orchestra and the uh, the guitar in there, the the, the kind of yeah. um, real affected you know guitar and, and all that and uh, the. Um, the, the French horns in there, too. I have a mm-hmm. thing for French horn. I don't know what it is, but there's something about that that sound that has... There's a warm warm resonance to the French horn that's unlike any other sure. yeah. any other wind instrument out there. And it really just... Especially when it's overblown, too. Yes. Like it's a real yes. loud. Yeah. Um, yeah. Alan Parsons is really Sure, good yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a, I'm a big Doctor Who fan. Uh, people listening to this podcast will know this. And one of the things that I've loved about the... Um, 2005 and on version the, the versions of the theme tune have its big orchestral numbers with uh, with lots of French horn in it and there's these big wah, wah, French mm-hmm. horns and it yeah. just it just gives me goosebumps every time I hear it love it I love it so much I bought a French horn nice not fun to play no no no, no, no. it's one of those like maybe next hammer. record <laughs> yeah. no it was awful I, when I was a kid I had asthma so I'm not into Making music to where I have to hold my breath. Sure, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. That's a lot of, especially you got your your hand in there to mute it, and yeah. so you're you're trying to push well, against that, that too. So not an easy thing. Leave it to the French to make yeah. something really complicated. <laughs> so so anyway, we did this instrumental EP, and and um, that took us to the end of 2013. Really, that was right. the end of the 20th anniversary right. year, and we hadn't released anything. So <laughs> we thought. Rather than rushing to just put out this EP, let's uh, make a big deal out of it. And so we got together up at my studio in Northern California, and we shot a, a video for Traveler on the Supernatural Highways. Right. And it's a 26-minute performance video. Fantastic. There's no, there's no actors. There's no dancing girls. Uh, um, you know, no minions. Just, uh, just us guys playing. And... Um, it's a really honest, just kind of natural video, kind of not not too hypey or anything. You know, Mark has a really nice digital SLR camera, and and we just shot it. And yeah, um, yeah. so we we actually released the video on the day we released the album, mm-hmm. and we didn't tell anyone about it. It just kind of like, okay, new album in one week. Yeah. And I was like, well, wait, what? Wait, what? what? You guys haven't done anything in seven years? Record. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and uh, so then, you know, we released this instrumental album, which this band had never done an instrumental album before. And then we had this epic 26-minute YouTube video to go along with nice, it. Nice, nice. And so we put that out, I think it was February, March, end of February, February beginning of March, yeah. 2014, last year. And then uh, immediately we set about <clears throat> finishing the rest of the album, like all the vocal songs, and we still had instrumental pieces so that became the refuel album and when you listen to those two albums um, together supernatural highways and refuel they were truly recorded 
at the same time because they were meant to be one album. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But they really have different personalities. I mean, sonically, they're they're a little bit similar because, you know, the drums were kind of all recorded during the same session, although we brought in Greg Ellis to do percussion on... on, uh, on Traveler, um, but I guess the, the composition and just kind of the artistic ethic behind each one push it pushes each album mm-hmm. kind of in its own direction. Sure. So um, Refuel is really its own thing, and it it stands yeah. on its own. I think it's, that's great. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, everything I've heard on it, I like. I like it's funny. It's 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 almost like Supernatural Highways was like this outgrowth or a stop along the way. Yeah, um, sure. Yeah, because it was really it was all. I always felt like it was all about the vocal album that we were making, and then like Supernatural Highways just kind of took on a life of its own and happened. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Had some spare notes. Yeah, put them all together. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, way yeah. it ran. And it's a strange thing to say, but all of those m- instrumental pieces that make up Traveler on the Supernatural Highways, the. The whole piece is what's the expression? The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Sure, it, sure. And it it just became this kind of giant symphonic work that you could cut it up and say, okay, here's part two, and we've done that for radio shows. Like, sure, oh, sure, sure. Or Don's going to do a stick event, so we take the one really stick oriented piece, and okay, here you can play this because they're not going to play twenty six minutes, right, but they can right. play four minutes. Sure. Yeah. So we've done it, you know, out of necessity, but. When you put the whole big thing together, and it starts off real spooky and quiet with kind of oozing synthesizers and you know white noise going through the Leslie spinning yeah, around, yeah. and then it kind of goes up to this big climax and then back down again, and you end with the same kind of you know spacey thing, sure. with white noise going through the Leslie, and and um, we even did that in the video. Like it starts off kind of <clears> quiet, <throat> and we actually shot ourselves in the foot. No, we shot ourselves <laughs> walking onto the set. As that's nice, all growing, nice, nice. and then picking up the instruments, yeah. and then at the end, the same thing, one by one, you know, Mark puts his guitar down and walks off. Don finishes his last, you know, kind of fretless bass mm-hmm. riffs and takes the stick off, puts it down, and I, you know, let go of the synthesizer with kind of a long release, and then right. walk off. And we kind of represented it visually the way we approached it musically. Cool, cool. Plus taking out the disc. Yes, taking out the disc that holds down the note on yeah. the mini mode, which is a that's kind of a signature technique I developed. Yeah. Like when um, you know you want to have drones going on, you can hold it you know with a sustain pedal. But what if you want to play a keyboard that you know is over on the other side and you can't do this like yeah. twister contortion kind of thing? Right. So in the seventies, Keith Emerson was famous for sticking knives in his Hammond organ to do that. So, okay, well, Hammond organ is wood, and so you can stick a knife in wood, and right. you can do that several times. Right. And it'll hold, you know, it'll, if you do it the right way, it'll get in between the keys and fold those down. Well, right. um, I have a grand piano that's wood, so I'm not <laughs> sticking <laughs> knives in that. Um, but, you know, the synthesizers and all that, you can't really stick knives in them. And, you no, know, no. People look at you funny when you bring knives to a sure, gig. Sure, yeah, yeah. It's not that kind of gig. So um, I yeah. came up with this kind of... Um, strangely uh, iconoclastic and maybe even ironic method of holding down drones where I took old three and a half inch floppy disks and I stick them between the keys and it holds it down and I do that even in my you know 
my current tour is when I when I go nice. out and do my instrumental prog stuff and all that. I cool. I do that throughout the set, <laughs> and I think I've been doing it for like fifteen yeah. years. But I think only recently have people caught on to yeah. it. And yeah. yeah, well, recently people are like, "Wow, where do you get a three point five inch yeah. floppy yeah. disk? <laughs> I got a whole garage full of them. <laughs> I've got hundreds." Yeah, it's because the old seven and a half inch Fairlight discs, those <laughs> right. won't fit. Yeah. Those won't pull down and out. Too thin. Maybe some CD mini, CD little little CD uh, yeah. three inch discs that you could put you that. Sometimes we all have a little something. You've got that, and then for my slide. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. This is cool. I use the infamous. They're called carabiners. Carabiner, yeah. yeah. They also had another name, some kind of. Like and you use that as a as a as a yeah, slide. Yeah, so tap. Yeah, and then also slide. Nice, so. and it fits right. The the the, the gap fits That's between the your fingers, and it really. Yeah. Buy now the special dawn shift slide. Nice, ten bucks or dollar twenty five. Beats the old beats the old right. uh, glass pill bottle over the pinky, I guess. Uh, right. You've been doing yeah. that for a good fifteen years yeah. now, probably. Wow, yeah. the carabiner for a slide. Wow, Prior the to things that, you learn. When uh, that was the only uh, stick out, I used to still like to slide, and I used to put a matchbook underneath the uh, where the tuners are to lift the strings up so I could play that like a lap steel. Wow. Didn't you know help the tuning at all, but I was playing slide. You even got, you even got your name in oh, yeah, pearl yeah. in the fret, yeah, in, in between the frets. That's amazing. It was a gift from yeah. Pat Duncan. Yeah. He said, uh, I forgot the guy's name, but he's very famous, and he was asking me, you know, well, what do you want? Oh, I don't know. And he goes, oh, tell me about yourself. So then we had... Uh, my background is Jewish, so we put the Jewish star in there, and eight was my favorite number. My son was born eight eight eighty one, but also the infinity, the infinity symbol. symbol. Yeah, and then the star and the moon. Uh, one day, Aaron and I were looking up at the sky, and the star. And I guess it's Jupiter, maybe, or maybe it's Mars. I don't know. But every once a year, they appear like that. And yeah. I told him, I said, "Let's always remember this night." So I put that in there, and I, I love to tell Aaron, I go, remember that time? We, no, I don't remember that. <laughs> He's only kidding. He's a kidder. Yeah. When I first met Don um, in the early, mid-80s, something mm-hmm. like that, if mm-hmm. you can believe that, um, Don would come, we had a friend, uh, we still have a friend, yeah. in, in Sherman Oaks that had a studio where we would do these sessions, and... Don would bring his young son to the sessions who would sleep in his base case. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And he knew that, oh, back in the day when there was tape, if he saw the reels rolling, he wouldn't talk or ask for anything. I remember taking him to a session and he would sleep in the case and he had a little baseball cap and he'd pull it down and he'd get up and, okay, tape, stop. Uh, he calls me Don. Don, uh, a pee. Okay, so great. Here, come on. Here's a you know instead of, here's a tree. Pee there. I'll pee it, and then you know, back in the base case. Go back to bed. We got another hour. Oh, that's great. He's a good studio kid. And now he's a strapping young lad that helps us move hand yeah. organs and Rhodes pianos and Fantastic. things like all, that. All these yes, giant giant uh, pieces of musical equipment. Yeah. Now he carries me around. <laughs> So what uh, what's on the agenda for you guys for let's say the, the 2015? Are you touring? Or are you are you uh, doing stuff in support of the album? Uh, interviews, obviously, things like that, or just kind of. Uh... We're not doing any interviews. In fact, we're going to have to erase all this. <laughs> oh yeah. damn, damn, damn! I'll keep it in my mind right. forever. Um, Wait, where am I? We actually. <laughs> 
Yeah, where's the Men in Black? Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whoop, yeah. <laughs> um, we we decided uh, just with all of our lives and schedules and all that that we weren't going to tour um, with this album. It's just the. I think we figured out a long time ago that that Rocket Scientists is not a bar band. It's more of a theater band. Sure, and sure. that's not to not to be uh, arrogant or. or highfalutin or anything like that it's just the kind of music we play Mm -hmm. is better suited to a seated theater audience than kind of a noisy tried the other way yeah we tried really we played in plenty of plenty of bars and you know when I, i i've gone out with a lot of you know more rock bands hard rock bands and you know that works great in a bar. sure sure you know when you're playing highway star or something in a bar you know that works yeah. great in a bar right but uh you know, travel around the supernatural highways not so much no so um it, for us to mount a, a theater tour at this point would be extremely expensive yeah um and there's limited places where we could do it sure you know, we're, we're it's it's not like we're uh widely known you know throughout uh, throughout the galaxy so um it's just it's not the right time to do that right yeah so being aware of the limitations yeah the realistic realism of the uh, limitation and we and we didn't and we didn't want to half-ass it either so sure okay well we really want to do a theater uh show but let's go do a gig at the whiskey on sunset instead no that's not going to work it's just this is not going to work so um what we decided to do instead with this album uh, was focus a lot of energy on videos. Yeah, there you go. And just today we released the video for Galileo. Galileo, yeah. Uh, the third video from the album. Directed by the uh, the talented uh, Heidi Hornbacher. Yes, yeah, yeah. and Eric Nielsen, and Eric her Nielsen. intrepid partner. Cool. Um, Who then, also did uh, She's Going Crazy and... and um, Right, she's getting hysterical. Sorry, sorry, she's getting hysterical. The, uh, Forgive uh, me. Yeah, you're mixing us up with the fine young cannibal. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Um, so, um, I've known Eric for, uh, quite a while and I met Heidi uh, two or three years ago, I guess. Mm -hmm. I was doing a gig at a winery in Hollister, California. Fantastic. And Heidi and her husband, Carlo were there as uh, friends of someone else. And so we, I met them there and, um, Eric had, uh, started up this kind of production company uh, Mm -hmm. with Heidi and so he's like, oh, well, you remember Heidi from, you know, this game. Sure. So uh, I brought them in to do the video for She's Getting Hysterical. Sure. And we came up with this concept that was like maybe kind of half steampunk and, mm-hmm. um, you know, this almost kind of tongue-in-cheek concept. But, you know, we took it all very seriously sure. and had a nice set and very nice costumes. We got actual actors, actual professional mm-hmm. actors. Mm-hmm to come in who just did an amazing job. Yeah, I like that video a lot. Oh, thanks. And and um, Heidi wrote this awesome script, and Eric shot the whole thing and edited the thing, and it just came out great. So I told them after, uh, at the end of the shoot, that, you know, this is just kind of the way I work. I really like to keep the band together. So if we find something that works, let's just stick with it. Stick with the the formula. Mm-hmm. So I asked them to continue on with us and and do the next fantastic uh, three videos. Nice. So then about a month later, three weeks later, something like that, we shot the second video for "It's Over," mm-hmm. which was Mark's one of Mark's songs on the record, 
and we took a totally different approach to that. We shot that uh, in Beechwood Canyon mm-hmm. when we first yeah. met you, yep. of course. And then um, at the same time, we shot, uh, well, let's see, we shot for two days there. Uh, the second day, we shot instrumental footage for Galileo. Cool. Um, and then we did another session with actors, again, actual professional actors. Actors. In, uh, in a studio in Moorpark. Nice, uh, nice. And then, of course, we that became the Galileo video. We just released that today. Yep. And we have uh, one more video that uh, we have. Uh, I think we have all the footage shot for it, but we will edit that together and release it soon. But I'm not going to tell you what song it is. Which song it is? All right. Because I'm just that way. <laughs> great, great. Surprise. Well, uh, so that's that's the approach. So rather than touring, we sure. we put. Really, a lot of effort into the videos. Cool. Are you getting a lot of good responses? Seems like you're getting a lot of good responses. Yeah. A lot of viewerships on we, YouTube and such. And yeah. we really are. And you know, we've 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 been doing this for so long. We've made friends all over the world. And, yeah. In, oh, Ru- yeah. In, in Europe and in Russia and in Japan nice. and in Mexico and Canada. Nice. And it's nice to be able to release something that all of our friends all over the world can kind of get at the same yeah. time. Right. Right. Rather than the touring thing where. You know, you're Maybe touring in you Holland, made, right. and they, you know, okay, so 200 people in Holland just think, "Wow, that was an amazing show," and then all the people in Mexico are like, hey, uh, "Yeah, but when are you going to come yeah, here?" Yeah, and two yeah, years yeah. later, we go to Mexico, and all the people in Holland are like, "Yeah, well, when are you going to come back yeah, here?" And yeah, yeah. So it, it's fun to, to do it this way, and and um, I think everyone's really enjoying it. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, I think also your music and the the progressive and. Kind of science fictiony elements to it, and 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 it really lends itself to an electronic medium and being seen, technologically speaking, seen around the world. So that's good. Yeah, cool. That's good. I was just talking last week, real quick, before we wrap up. Uh, last week, I was interviewing uh, Eric Shriek, who's in a band called Unextraordinary Gentlemen, and I was telling him about your band and about the the steampunk uh, look that you guys have been rocking, and that, that's good. And and I was very happy that. Unlike some of the other, um, rather than the word genre, kind of affectations that people have kind of taken on in, the, in those types, in bands and other, other you know, milieu, if you will, the, 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 the steampunk thing was something that didn't get completely oversaturated, that it kind of came and was big for a bit and then kind of eased off and has found a nice balance. So when you see it, it's still interesting and fun. It's like, oh, Christ, there's another you know, steampunk. And, you know, we didn't, we tried not to overdo it. Exactly, too, because, exactly. Because it's little subtle touches, a goggles here or a strange lapel pin there the, or that kind of thing. I mean, it's because it's at the point now where I think especially like with Doctor Who being so popular sure, that... Sure. that you know, like gears as jewelry. That's, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a little over the top now. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. you know, like we were putting our costumes together and, um, you know, trying to find, you know, the right balance between, okay, we want to have like a steampunk theme, but we don't want it to be a cartoon. Right. Yeah. You don't, and, want, you know, to be... you don't want to have like a, you know, a big gear as a necklace or right, something right, like, right. you know, or, 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 you know, the, the big top hat that Mark wore, you know, you, you can get those top hats that have gears all over them. Sure, that's sure, that's yeah. like just a Oh yeah. I got some of that stuff silly. in too. So, so I've done yeah. steampunk clubs. And we, stuff. we actually did, uh, we, we, we talked to people who, who knew. So sure. Don called his friend, um, Felicia Day, who's yeah. Pat Duncan's wife. Oh, wow. Wife, okay. Okay. And yeah, she I'm kind of familiar. advised Don and, and... How how to do it without going over the top. Yeah. Don did the music for the Guild. Oh. Don did the theme, yeah. Oh, okay. 
Wow, that all, that's a big... See, right there, the that, guild. Oh, there, well, there's... Yeah, there you go. Wow, uh, that's a big... Six rap. episodes. That's a... Yeah, yeah. We'll I mean, six, yeah, six seasons. Six seasons. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I need to get four more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow, that's a good, great joint nerdy joining up at the yeah. back end yeah. there. That's great. That's great. There you go. Although, I did actually... Uh, I think I made a Facebook post one time, and I, I made the mistake of abbreviating doctor when I wrote doctor. Yeah, Who, that's And no, people no, don't no, like no, that. Yeah, that's it's a like, no, no. I get, wow. I get that, his, I get okay. that his, his name is doctor. He's not a doctor, but um, can, you can still abbreviate the word. You can't. I know you can't, yeah, but that's yeah. what I thought. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, and, anyway. and I totally understand that. That's yeah. logic. Yeah, because because you know words, language. Yeah, yeah. people yeah. are people are very precious you with that. So very, yeah. do yeah, not abbreviate right. the really doctor. Are. They really are. Yes. Yeah. We're uh, a little over. An, we're an hour and a half here, and it's good. This has been all been really great. So why don't you guys uh, plug your online presences and uh, um, uh, tell us where people can find you online. Well, our website is thetank.com. Um, that's uh, my production company and record company, uh, thetank.com. And you go there, and of course, there's links to Facebook and YouTube and any other. I think we actually still have a MySpace page. I should probably <laughs> look at that sometime. Yeah. yeah, anyway, so thetank.com is the hub. Um, we're very active on Facebook. There's a, a mm-hmm. nice rocket scientist page. Um, uh, it's uh, what is it? Rocket Scientist Band. No, that's actually. I think that's the MySpace. It's oh. it's a Rocket Scientist official artist page. Oh, okay. yeah, I believe. But yeah. if you type in Rocket Scientist, yeah, Facebook, you search Rocket Scientist. Are you guys on Twitter at all? Or we're not on Twitter. Okay. We need to do that. I've been. Uh, I actually I've got been scolded my, by several. People. I was on everything, and then in nineteen or in uh, two thousand and nine, I I got rid of everything except Facebook. And then the other uh, about a month ago, I was like, "Hmm, I wonder if my old name is available on Twitter because I've been because the podcast have been back yeah. on Twitter." And sure enough, they let me have my old name back that I had, yeah. been, and I got it back. And now I'm—it's funny—I have more personal followers than the podcast does. But even though I've been on the podcast longer, yeah. Oh, Same we have thing. A, we have a YouTube channel, of YouTube course. Channel, yeah, yeah. It's, YouTube uh, rocket scientists, okay. And uh, but that's it. So that's just now. Is our YouTube channel? Rocket scientist band, or maybe YouTube is. I don't know. Anyway, if you go, well, to, if well, you what go I'm going to do is what, when I put this up, I'll get the cheat sheet. I'll put the cheat yeah. sheet up. I'll put links, uh, links in the blog. I'm going to get, I'm going to get scolded by our publicist <laughs> over this. Yeah. That's why I and I have difficulty remembering what is what too. So I actually printed out all the stuff I'm supposed to say at the end of the podcast, so I don't forget and get it all right. And don't, have, don't do a lot of um or uh, um. Oh, so oh, so you go in and you edit. Yeah, uh, well, not really edit, but I, uh, no, uh, we really don't edit. The, the, occasionally, if somebody says, hey, can you cut that out, I'll cut that out, gotcha. or if there's one thing, uh, but or a gap or pause or something, but for the most part, it's oh, nice. just yeah. as is, pretty raw, so, Good. so, but thanks, guys, this has been really great, I'm really glad we got a chance to do a full episode, get more in-depth, in and, um, and when you guys release stuff, definitely come back if you have any news or you anything, bet, yeah. Gonna, yeah. yeah, definitely come back, so, um, so I'm uh, at St. Michael on Twitter. That's S-A-Y-N-T-M-Y-K-L. You can find us online as Something2XP. Please subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook and Google+. Check out our blog and listen to past episodes on WordPress. Email us at Something2XP at gmail.com. And remember, please be kind. The Something Something Experience podcast was conceived and produced by Michael John Simpson. 
Intro music, Ways to Change Faces, and outro music, Scorpio 37, was written, produced, and provided by the talented Sebastian Cesari. You can find us everywhere online as Something2XP. Please subscribe and review us on iTunes, WordPress, and YouTube. Please follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook and Google+. Email us at something2xp at gmail.com. We invite your feedback. Please be kind.